And we are back, going back to the future with days of future past here on Marvel vs. Marvel. Um, and Will, man, have we put everyone in the picture in our in our part one as we look behind the scenes on the uh, the X-Men animated series. Mm. Um, shout out to Eric Lewald and his uh, fantastic book previously on X-Men. Eric Lewald, the head writer of the uh, X-Men animated series, wrote this exhaustive book on the step-by-step on the production of the series, including, you know, the script, how the scripts were made, how the music came together, the casting, the notes they got from the network saying, you can't do this anymore, how dare you? Um, All the merch, the the times they tried to cut their salaries and stuff. It's a really great book if you're a a mega fan of the X-Men, a mega fan of um, the the cool cartoon series in the 90s, previously on X-Men by Eric Lewald. Um... We took a look at, at how this was a, a, a this is just an instant classic Marvel story, set the tone was um, mm. for, for the X Men of the eighties and it really defined a huge amount. It introduced some incredibly sophisticated storytelling into the world of comics um, and kind of pioneered the um, dystopian future in the superhero genre. Took care of a little bit of business as well, didn't we? Will <laughs> we give a big shout out to uh, Peter J. Brandon Schmigilski, to Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Basta Beer. Shout out to Sam, to Bindi, Sue P, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, Zubair, Qureshi, because those are the people in the world-class wrecking crew, the supporters at the highest level, and make these shows possible. So everyone should be giving them a shout-out, really. I want you all at home to repeat those names um, so that you're verbally acknowledging your, the, <laughs> the tribal chiefs of this, uh, of this podcast. Now it's time, though, for the deep dive. Mm. Um, we're dealing with the um, very first adaptation of Days of Future Past, which is two episodes from the first series, the first season of X-Men, the animated series. Will, let's press play. Previously on X-Men. I'm not going to do the voice. Uh, tensions. Why not? Previously on X-Men. That's a good voice. There we go. Tensions run high between the US government and the emerging mutants in the world. Government agent Henry Gyrick is behind a program called the Mutant Registration Act and commissions the building of giant robots to hunt down mutants. The X-Men have been exposed, sorry, the X-Men have exposed this program and had shut it down. But politician Senator Kelly is running for president on a platform of arresting all mutants and locking them up inside internment camps. So before we uh, get onto the actual story, we've covered the previously. Let's talk about uh, yet again the iconic title sequence at the start of every X Men episode in the nineties. Yes, that. No, go back to the book previously in X Men again. Eric Leadwell said there was a lot riding on the opening title sequence. As Margaret Loge kept reminding us, 90% of our initial audience would not know who the X-Men were. We were setting up a complex world with a large cast of characters, so we were all looking for the opening titles to be a helpful introduction. We couldn't weigh down our episodes with long explanations and reminders of who characters were and what powers they had. At first, The title hmm. sequence does do that so well, doesn't it? You get a title card, each character's introduced, and you go, that guy's got claws, he's called Wolverine. That guy's called Cyclops, his eyes go red and shoot things. Yep. Like, it, 
it's Jean it, Grace can fly, I guess, maybe something to do with her mind, and she can fly. You know, you can you get just about everyone. It's like it, you done you done it in a couple of seconds. You've just explained the character. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like he says, it's for economy. You don't then have to have a character walk in and go, Wolverine, put away your adamantium claws that can cut through anything and tell me more about your mysterious past. <laughs> Do you remember that episode of Frasier where he wanted a new theme tune for his show? And end up this. He end up for wanting to do like a five minute. It's only end up five minutes long with all these instruments and, and like a soliloquy and everything. Oh. But in the end, his dad was like, "How about you just go? What's new? I'm listening." And it's like this little jingle. It's like, yeah, that's the economy of that. You don't want to go too much. Yeah. Anyway, he continues. At first, Stan Lee, in his role as an advisor, pushed for narrated titles narrated by. Wait for it. Stanley, <laughs> what a shocking surprise! <laughs> Stan's attempts focused on phrases like atomic testing, frightening powers, freaks, monsters, inhuman. Only, me- only <laughs> mentioning the X Men in their quest at the very end. It seemed to miss our focus for the show. Like the, if you remember any of the older cartoons, like Spider Man as Amazing Friends had Stan doing the intro. Oh, no. The old seventies, the eighties Hulk series had Stanley doing the intro. No. Um, when they did a um, a one off pilot for the X Men, Stanley did the intro. So yeah, as the as the consultant, uh, it seemed to yeah squeeze himself in. There's a really good uh, uh, Key and Peel sketch where is Stan Lee meeting with a bunch of comic book artists at Marvel. I, yeah, and that, that's not one of my. I wanted because I lo- I love Key and Peel and I lo- I like the Stan Lee stuff. I didn't find it that funny. It but, wasn't one of yeah. their best, but I remember no, it. It, it was, it's no Gremlins too. Gremlins. <laughs> the, I haven't seen greatest... Gremlins two, but that sketch was hilarious. Mate, Gremlins 2 is the greatest sequel ever made. It's incredible. The It is the most... Bu- right, the guy didn't want to do a Gremlins sequel. Yeah. But Gremlins made far too much money for them not to do a Gremlins sequel. Yeah. He had, like, first right of refusal, so he said, fine, I'm going to do the sequel, and I'm going to do it in a way that you can never do another movie. And he just blows up the franchise. He takes shots at... Hollywood, the production company, capitalism, everyone that critiques the movie, it's brilliant. It's and Hulk Hogan's in it. It's great. Oh, I gotta write this down on my list, haven't I? Everybody stop the podcast. Willie's writing down on his lists. Just it's just Gremlins too, mate. Gremlin I'm gonna no, I haven't seen Gremlins one. What? Look, there are some really weird blind spots in my film history knowledge, okay? Okay, so don't watch Gremlins 2 yet. I'm gonna watch him. Both save, for, yeah. No, save Gremlins for Christmas because it's a it's a Christmas set movie. It's great to have another great Christmas movie. I watch Christmas movies when I please. I'm a grown man, Rob. I could watch Christmas movies the- in July. <laughs> Artist producer Will Menyon, I think that is looks like a French. Yeah, name. sure. Menyon was heavily involved in finding the iconic theme song. He said one of the things that was constant in everybody's mind was you guessed it. Batman the Animated Series, because that was in production for like a year and a half ahead of us. They had enough time to think about it, where we were, where we just had to hit the bricks running and get our show out. They had that Danny Elfman style score, and they had more symphonic music. Even though the Fox Network was pressuring us to go more Batman, it was just wrong for Marvel. We had to be the anti-Batman, because we, we only had half or a third of their budget. Jeez. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Batman animated series. It's just 
just wonderful. The opening title still sent us a shiver down my spine. It's perfect. perfect. I agree, yeah, but it is definitely pitched for older viewers. It is weird how that is, isn't it? It's definitely not a Again, kid's thing. I, I, I tried to get my... my I think when my, <laughs> yeah. my godson was eight, I was like, well, well what's your Batman? And, and he was so bored. And I went, no one in a costume has done anything yet. It's been all these men in 1930s cars and 1930s suits. <laughs> so I, I sacked it off and put on the 1960s movie. And he oh, loved it. Oh, the 1960s movie loved it. Brilliant. Bright, colourful characters. Yep, yep. Loads of people running around. We spent so much time going back and forth with the Saban music department. Saban. Saban, sorry. Sa- it's Sa- the, uh, Saban. the Power Ranger dude. Power Ranger dude. Yeah. I am Saban. He's uh, Royce yeah. the Doyster. He is. He's a Dell boy. Yeah. He's great. Because they kept trying to give us a cheaper and generic score like on live action adventure shows like Sinbad and Hercules, where it was just synth, but you didn't have a core melody. <laughs> There was a point where the Saban, the Saban music people just hated me because we were pounding them constantly that we needed something that when you heard it, you knew it was the X-Men. I'm so glad they, they did that. I'm so glad they hammered for it. it isn't it? It's interesting. That it, it is so memorable, iconic. It's it's And it's not just a great... Because the animation on the title sequence is better than any animation in the series whatsoever. They spe- they clearly spent loads more money on that. It's a it's a great you know the way it flows, the way it the way it looks, the way it moves. It's just, it's just brilliant. More, call it more yeah. pop, everything about it. And then the song is so good on top, and the two things go together so well. It's interesting to hear they have to really fight to make that happen. God, just just it just seems like ah, we don't want to make good shows. We want to fob off. We just want to fob honestly. Them off. Yeah. Sabam Entertainment. Oh, here we go. So, do you know how do you know how you make how they make the Power Rangers? They used stock footage from an old, from an unknown Japanese movie or TV show, didn't they? Yeah, he bought up all this. Yeah. he had the the international rights to distribute all this um, footage from this TV show outside of Asia. Yeah, um, and then he just gets some kids in to film the other bits, the American bits, and do the voiceover stuff. And and the reason that it has to ch- it keeps changing, so Power Rangers becomes Power Rangers Space Force, and then Power Rangers dinosaur legends or whatever <laughs> is because those shows keep ending in, in Japan they have to keep finding new ones <laughs> just so it's great it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, pitch, it's a great if you ever get to watch like um, the toys not toys that made yeah oh, the toys, toys that, that made, made as documentary made, on yeah, Power Rangers it's yeah. great Oh god, that's what's one. I love the stuff when the behind the scenes stuff are more. It's more interesting than the actual yeah. thing. Anyway, we shall continue with the story. In the year 2055, New York City lies in smouldering ruins. In the rubble, Wolverine escorts two mutants through the derelict streets before the group is ambushed by Sentinels. Working together, the group fights back against the giant robots, taking them down with relative ease. With barely any time to recover from the battle, the group is set upon by a tracker, a bounty hunter, called Bishop, who knocks them out before taking them prisoner. So I'm going to talk about this you know, over and over again, but even as a kid, I always love stories where society has crumbled and city lies in ruin. Always look cool and dramatic. It feels like it's the most dramatic way. It's, it's like... It's the most it's the most dramatic you can get. Sometimes you watch you watch an awful lot of these action adventure stories, and it's mm. we've got to save the world from being destroyed. Yeah. In this, it's like that happened. <laughs> like how much more dramatic? Like the horrible thing has already happened, and now we're just in ruins. Like yeah, it's, really hyped, it? it's very memorable. I love it. So in the comic book, is this how it starts? We have a burnt out city and people on the run. Is that how it all starts? 
Yeah, we, we start uh, in media res. I believe the year is... Yeah, here we go. Is 2013 or something. Oh, yeah. God! Um, I think so, yeah. <laughs> the sliding um, time scale of or what, 2000, what? No, not 2000. 2003 must be, something like that. Bloody um, hell, even worse. Because um, yeah. it was written in 81, yeah. so it's like... Twenty years in the future, or something. Well, you remember um, Escape from New York? That was re- that was released at, at the same time. It's like the future is nineteen ninety nine, nineteen seven, or nineteen. Yeah. yeah, it's mental. And so we we have this world run into the ground. Mm. It's kind of a cyberpunky start. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got no explanation of what's happening. That's the key to the start. You don't mm. know what's happening, but. The giant leap forward in time is so much more pronounced in the comic book because mm. our POV character isn't Wolverine. Yeah. Like, what we see here is Wolverine, an adult who now looks a little bit older. Yeah. In the comic, our POV character is Kitty Pride. Ah, okay. Who had only just been introduced mm. a couple of months before. Mm. And in our last issue that we saw her, Kitty Pride is a youthful 15-year-old or... 14-year-old child. Mm. And then we open the comic and we're told that this fully grown middle-aged woman, Kate Pride, that's who she is now. Mm. And she's wearing a slave collar. And she's, you know, picking her way through the the rubble of New York. And we're told this was once the most affluent area of in the city, maybe the country, maybe the world. And now, like everything else, it's, you know, so we, we, yeah, we really do start on the back foot. Fantastic. Escorting the mutant rebels in restraints, Bishop tells Wolverine that he's taking them to a mutant termination center. Wolverine tells Bishop that the Sentinels want to kill all humans, but Bishop informs him that they just want rebels and they treat the rest of them just fine. However, when they reach the gates of the mutant termination center, the Sentinel guards revoke Bishop's tracker identification and sentence Bishop and the group for termination. As they're escorted by the Sentinels, Wolverine grimaces at some gravestones. The names on the gravestones are those of the X-Men. So we're dealing with genocide in a children's cartoon. Bold step, but done well. It's done well here. Yeah, they obviously avoid... And this is in a... As as we, 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 we both learned reading the... the Eric Lewald's book. This is a series that where no one can punch anyone. There's no punching <laughs> oh, in the yeah. whole comic, in the whole series. Sorry, and there's all these the rules that you, you can and can't do. So it's yeah. a. I can't imagine what they had to kind of like juggle to get this on the air. Yeah, they must have like there'll be key words they can't say. Well, they never say genocide. They, they, they don't, don't say, say kill. Murder. They, they say mutant termination center. They don't yeah. say like a concentration camp or yeah. whatever. So. We this is this is this is how it is in the comics. You have like mutant termination centers. You have trackers and bounty hunters and sentinels everywhere. That's that's how it is. Um, no, no trackers or bounty hunters. We'll oh. deal with that. We'll deal with Bishop a bit later. Okay. Um, we have internment camps. Ugh. So we we have this. Yeah, we, we it's, it's it's very similar. We start with this. Like I said, it's it's meant to be Park Avenue. Um, mm. And the, and the, the the text sort of the descriptive words the Chris Clement words is like this was the swankiest neighborhood um, in in New York abandoned derelict dying much like the rest of the city the country the world around it Oof. and we follow Kitty Pride on her journey Kate Pride sorry future Kitty on her journey across the city and we see she has to catch public transport the public transportation system. 
is run-down old buses being pulled by horses and donkeys. Um, she returns to this concentration camp where she lives after running a mission for the Sentinels. Mm. Um, and she first, as she has to do every day, walk through a huge cemetery littered with the graves of her friends and family. Ugh. And the names we see are Xavier, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, mm. Iceman, Angel, but also Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Ben oh. Grimm, Johnny Storm, and Peter Parker, although we only get half the name, but it's mm. it's no it, it's only Peter Parker. Um and so we also learned the Sentinels have not just killed Kitty's um friends and fellow X-Men, but she says they've they killed her children as well, her babies. Oh, no. Um and we Chris Clement is uh, you might hear me occasionally talk about him using what's called purple prose. He he loves to, he loves to write, but his writing in this is really evocative as it you know what it's always evocative what's her purple prose again oh kind of flowery language like like far too far too flowery unnecessarily mm. too much um but it's very powerful in setting the scene here mm. um in north america in the year 2013 there are three classes h for baseline human mm. clean of mutant genes allowed to breed a for anomalous human, a normal person possessing mutant genetic potential forbidden to breed. M for mutant, the bottom of the heap, made pariahs and outcasts by the Mutant Control Act of 1988, and hunted down and killed without mercy. In the quarter of a century since the Act's passage, millions have died. Oof. They were the lucky ones. Ooh, I was just going to say that those designations spell ham. I'm glad you didn't interrupt me to say that. I was really you waited to give it its own little. It spells thing here. ham. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it, I mean, it don't look. No one's telling you you're wrong, Will. Um, I think we are. We might be saying, "Is there any need to have shared it with us?" Um, but yeah, because um, what I just did is try to build up the dramatic tension and and how this is being portrayed in this groundbreaking and classic series. And I got to the phrase, "Millions have died. They were the lucky ones." And he went, "Ham, ham." <laughs> I think you've managed to drive down the core of the podcast in its uh in, in its form its base form yeah <laughs> i wish it was something else but you're right that is what we are <laughs> anyway i'll continue shall i or are you no yeah sure yeah is there any other meat based abbreviations just, just, no just, 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 just carry on with the thing ah uh, ham while they walk away from the gravestones, one of the captured mutants unleashes an energy blast at one of the Sentinels, prompting Wolverine to seize the moment and pounce on the robot. However, the Sentinel grabs Wolverine and starts crushing him. The next second, Bishop unleashes the energy, an energy blast of his own on the Sentinel, disabling it and freeing Wolverine. One of the mutants reminds Wolverine that they have a mission to complete and they escape with Bishop and Wolverine escapes with Bishop. So we do get to see Wolverine in the comic book story, do we? Uh, do we get to see him? Because you saw him on the front cover. Yeah, so future Kitty uh, is on a supply run for the Sentinels, but she is deviating mm. from her route 
for a secret rendezvous with Wolverine. Um, and she um, gets into a very sketchy part of the ruined town where she's attacked by rogues, who are these very colourfully attired um, street thugs with knives and broken bottles and stuff, and they're, they're going to do some real damage to Kitty, and they talk about how they hate mutants even more than they hate the Sentinels who were in charge. Um, and she, we learn that she's got this collar on that prevents her from using her mutant powers, so she's got to fight and... Oh, kind of uh, scrap on her own, but then she is saved by uh, an an aged Wolverine who has white streaks in his temples of his hair, like Paulie uh, from <laughs> yes. the Sopranos or like Reed Richards does. I was um, immediately thinking of Paulie. Um, he is Colonel Logan of the Canadian Resistance Army. Wow! Um, and Logan has smuggled a small tech device to Kitty, which we learn is the final piece of their big secret plan. Um, and Logan, uh, he, if we, we learn from his inner monologue, his inner thoughts, he he can't use his claws when fighting here because um, the claw wounds and the claw marks would alert the Sentinels to the fact that Wolverine oh. has returned to America, and he wants to remain hidden. Oh my god, amazing. Arriving at the Rebel Bunker in New York City, Wolverine introduces Bishop to Forge, a mutant who has managed to build a working time machine. Wolverine knows that he needs to travel back to the 90s. Forge explains to a confused Bishop that the Rebels have a theory that that, that uh, if an assassination to that took place in the 90s never occurred, then the dark future they exist in today would never occur. Not only that, but it's a one-way trip. So, uh, we don't get to see... It doesn't have to be a one-way trip. Wolverine is just like, it's a one-way trip for me. For but me. Forge establishes, if you get rid of this, you just wear this thing on your wrist. Oh, yeah, yeah, and if you take yeah. it off, you come back to... But for some reason, Wolverine is like, I'm not coming back! <laughs> like, All right, fair enough, cool. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I read it. And then I was like, oh, wait, he does come back. So, we don't see much of Forge here. He seems fairly interesting. He seems like... Uh, he seems like someone who's more about creating things rather than fighting. Like, is he from the comics or is he just created for this cartoon? No, oh, yes, he is from the comics. Um, ah, introduced in 1984, so after uh, Days of Future Past story, mm. but before this cartoon is made. Um, Forge is a mutant with the super. His power is um, intuitive talent for inventing mechanical devices. <laughs> his he talent can- is he's Tony Stark. He can see mechanical energy, which nobody oh, else can see. Okay. So he can see the potential unreleased energy within mechanical things. So he can look at anything mechanical, and he can picture all the different ways it could be used mm. and all of its different potential. If I put that with that and do that, that, that becomes of this. Mm. Um, so he has this sort of genius-level intellect with design and tech. Um, and so combining these things together, his genius intellect and his ability to perceive things, it made him, it, it, certainly when he was introduced in the 80s, it made him Tony Stark on crack. <laughs> Tony Stark, in, as, as we modernly understand him, is this, in the comic books now and all that, he's this tech god that can do anything. It mm. wasn't the case in the 80s, whereas Forge was probably beyond Tony Stark. Yeah. He is sometimes his he's built something and he doesn't really know how he's built it. It's kind of his subconscious mind has invented something. Mm. Um 
and Forge himself is not really entirely aware of what it you know he has to take it apart to go oh that's how it works um he lost his leg and his hand in the Vietnam War managed to build highly sophisticated cybernetic replacements for them um Ooh. When Tony Stark stops making weapons for the U.S. government, advanced weapons and advanced mm. tech, Forge basically replaces him as the new Tony Stark for the for the military, um, oh, for wow. the government. Um, and one of the first things he builds and devises is a a, a weapon capable of neutralizing mutant powers, uh, a device, a gun, basically. Um, and uh, Henry Peter Geirich, the National Security Council, in order from the president, takes a device. He's set out to um, hunt down and eliminate and neutralize um, Rogue, who is uh, a wanted criminal. Mm. Um, but the device ends up um, taking out Storm and removing Storm's powers Oof. seemingly forever. Um, Storm is badly hurt, loses all her powers. She's left for dead. She falls into this ravine, this river. And it's Forge who um, saves her, uh, brings mm. her back to to uh, to his little house and nurtures her and brings her back to health and everything. And feelings develop between the two of them in this period of time when he's kind of helping her get get back and adjust to life without powers. Um, and then she finds out that Forge is the inventor of the thing that... And taking, taking her powers away is presented as this... Um, it's almost like being castrated. It's Ooh, a very... Yeah. It's presented as being this very... It's almost like... Or, or, or like losing a limb. It's yeah. a very humiliating thing as well as it being a physical thing. And so Storm is... Even though she's developed feelings of Forge, she kind of very much hates him for, for inventing this mm. and for working for the government to, to build something like this. We kind of later learned that um, Forge has some... Uh, mystic abilities um, as well. Um, he so they came about during the Vietnam War. They were penned in. Um, his comrades were killed, and horrible things happened to uh, mm. to his his whole platoon. Um, and he kind of taps into his Native um, American, Indigenous American, mm. um, shamanic kind of roots and um, summons something to help. And what he accidentally summons is a demon called the adversary that comes to earth what a name yeah yeah the, the adversary, adversary. Mm. well it's the old name for the devil the adversary i didn't know that yeah yeah Ooh. you'll find that in a lot of um religious fiction and mm. uh, stuff like that the the adversary is is the devil mm. um satan um and yeah he forge tries to um Tries to he calls in a uh, uh, like a B fifty two bomb strike to try and close the portal to the to the world of, of the unliving or hell or whatever, mm. and it sort of works. Um, it it gets it blows off um, Forge's leg and his hand, um, but the adversary has come through and he's kind of lying in wait, um, and he eventually goes after the X Men later on in the eighties. Um, and the only way to get rid of the adversary, the only way, mm. is a ritual sacrifice of nine willing lives. Yikes. So the X-Men volunteer to be murdered um, by, not murdered, but killed by Forge. And he, he goes around and he kills, like they, they do this whole ritual and he kills oh. all of them. Um, now, 
the X-Men's souls actually get kind of saved, uh, but the rest of the world don't know that. The rest of the world don't know the X-Men have been returned to life. And so for quite a while, Forge becomes this outcast amongst even mutants, blamed as the man who kills the X-Men. <laughs> Not surprised. Um, yeah, he he'd later go on to um, become the, the tech ally of the team, mm. um, and he would join the team a few times, a couple of times briefly, um, rekindle his romance with Storm, and eventually have a kind of a romance with Mystique as well. Oh, hello. He gets to be uh, heavily involved with X Factor at mm. a later point as well. So there you go. That's I like I like and, these kind of characters. Yeah, I had a cool figure of him. Oh yeah, a cool action figure that had like um, see-through plastic on the leg and the hand, so it looked like it was meant to look different than the other plastic, so it was to look like it was um, cybernetic or something. Oh, I know the kind you mean. That's cool. It That's definitely cool. wasn't. It wasn't metal. I'm not. I'm fairly certain it wasn't metal. The mm. only I remember there being. Do you remember? You might not remember this. There was a Saturday morning cartoon series with um, action figure tie-in called Bionic Six. That rings it was a, bell. a family. Family. And it was basically um, the Bionic Man, but what if there was a whole family of them? So we can have kids and women and all that, right? So, yeah, it was like the $6 million man, but a whole family, and there was six of them. So, because Saturday morning cartoons, you have to have an ensemble cast. You have to have yep, kids. Yep. You have to have a, a boy kid, a girl kid. You have to have uh, this, that, and the other. So it was this whole family. All six of them had a different Bionic part of their body. Um and uh, so they had different powers. And the f- mm. the figures were made of metal. They were so heavy. I don't know why, but I have read <laughs> up that it was just cost prohibitive to even make the figures. I don't know why they did it. That's mad. You only need to make one part of the metal. That's yeah, what you need to do. the bionic bit. Yeah. Jeez. Back to the cartoon. The next moment, alarm sound. Sentinels are closing in. Commenting on Wolverine's injury and advanced age, Bishop argues that it should be him going back to do the mission, something which Forge agrees with. The next moment, Sentinels blast through the door, being led by Nimrod, the Super Sentinel. Forge fits Bishop with a transceiver with all the information he needs before Bishop jumps into the time machine, sending him back to the 90s. Massive Terminator vibes here. I'm all for it, as I said. Love it. Yeah, I mean, it predates Terminator as the story. As a story, yeah, of course, of course. Um, although Terminator is based on, was it the Glass Hand and some other the, the something the something Soldier? Those, yeah, those um, Twilight Zone episodes, which probably influenced Clement and Byrne. Maybe who knows? Mm. They were out there in the sci-fi realm, weren't they? So you kind of assume Absolutely. that they were um, they were influence on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, part of me wishes that we had like, like um, a wacky montage of Bishop fitting into LA to, to, like, to like New York nineties life, Connecticut life, like um, with "I Love Cali- LA" playing in like, the background. Well, I got the the, the place wrong because I was thinking of California Man, like a California Man style oh. comedy with Bishop. Um, that would, that, Man for that wouldn't our, have been too Americans. out of place. To be fair, that wouldn't have been too bad. Trying to get, trying to get a different set of like a, a, yeah. a getting dressed montage to fit in with the fashion of the time and yeah. learning who uh, having to learn um, what Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero was all about. And, Jeez. Uh, anyway, back to the story is that there, there's a there's a rebel resistance force in the comic books like we're seeing here, right? 
Yes, but Forge is not Forge isn't involved because he didn't exist in 1981. Right. Okay. Um, not he didn't he didn't he wasn't created yet. Mm. Um, yeah. So the rebels are the last. Re- they're described as the last remaining X Men. Right. Um, and they're all being kept in this concentration camp with uh, future Kitty, Kate Pride. Future um, Kitty. <laughs> we uh, we find a middle aged colossus with graying hair, Ooh. who is Kitty's husband. Um, and that's the beginning of a fan favorite, quite debated relationship. That's that kind of that is alluding to. Obviously, they couldn't be together in the present day because Kitty is a child, and Colossus is like in his twenties, yeah, in his early twenties. But it shows in the future, in twenty years' time, they are together, and there's mm. a, obviously an age gap still. Um, and then that progresses. Um, we have a middle-aged storm. Uh, we see a man in a wheelchair, but it is a paralyzed Magneto. Oh, um, nice twist. Um, we have Franklin Richards, the son of Reed and Sue Richards of the Fantastic Four, mm. who was a toddler in the 80s, but here mm. is a, uh, a young man. Um, and Franklin had already been established to be a mutant, mm. uh, I think, at this point. Mm. And Franklin's girlfriend, a powerful telepath and telekinetic with red hair called Rachel um who it's not named in this in days of future past but in future stories it's re- climate reveals that this is the future daughter of Scott and Jean this is Rachel Summers yeah i had a feeling I had a feeling it was their child um yeah so that's the that's the sort of the future x-men the rebel force in the concentration camp Amazing, amazing. Arriving in the 1990s New York City, Bishop is surprised by how different things are back in the past, but also can't remember why he's here. To begin with, he, he doesn't think... He's in such a such a crap hole of a place. He doesn't think he's gone anywhere. <laughs> yeah. There's like a broken down car and rubbish everywhere. Yeah. And he's like, it didn't even work. And then he sees I- children playing and he's like... Playing children. <laughs> Do you know, that reminds me, like that that that, that little thing surprising you. Um, I've got like the four disc set of the first two Terminator films, all the special edition stuff, and there was a really good scene that they took out of the first Terminator film, which I think they should have kept in, where uh, you know Sarah Connor and Carl uh, Reese are on the run in, in the middle of nowhere, and. Uh, the, Sarah has an argument and falls out with him and then she runs off into the woods and then Carl chases after her, you know. And as, as he's got her, he starts looking around at all the trees and then starts crying, goes, I've never ah. seen trees before. And it was like, oh! And it's like, <laughs> not as dramatic as that. Like, why are there kids playing in the street? What the hell? Mm. You know, it's that kind of something so simple is so shocking for someone yeah, because they come yeah. from such a different place. And I always love that uh, deleted scene. Mad. There's, um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned this before. There's a there's a, a powerful scene I always remember from um, Brave New World, the the, the novel, oh, where good novel. Um, one of the one of the people sees the ocean for the first time. Yeah, and in this kind of the idea of the book is that the, the kind of dystopian future is very. It's all like the what would what will the Henry Ford model of yeah. doing stuff and productivity and business due to the world in the future yeah. and it become you get this very kind of um factory industrialized um world and when one of these people that's only ever lived in this kind of industrialized worlds sees the ocean the sea for the first mm. time 
They don't burst out crying. They have a wild panic attack. They are absolutely terrified. They start screaming <laughs> because it is endless nature. Yeah, it, is, it just goes on and on, and they've never. It, it, it terrifies them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I can imagine how that must have felt. Noticing a can, news. Can can you? <laughs> Well, this is the thing, an endless... <laughs> you ever had this feeling of... The like sea an, is quite scary, isn't it? It is. No, it is scary. I think it's very scary. But you know, it, it, this, this kind of incomprehensible, endless thing. Like, have you ever stared up into the naked night sky, like, without the city lights of pollution, and just see endless blanket of stars, and you start getting caught up in it? This is what happens to me. I start getting caught up in going, how long does it go? That's so terrifying. It's just <laughs> this endlessness. It's like Well, that's where cosmic horror comes from, isn't it? Cosmic, the oh, idea that the, the endlessness of um, of the universe is a terrifying thing. It is a terrifying. There was a re- we will get back to the story in a bit, folks. There was a really good um, Arthur C. Clarke quote that starts at the one of the XCOM games that goes, "We know either two things: that there is intelligent life out there, or we're alone in the universe. Both are terrifying." And it's mm. like, oh, I love that. And then the game's about aliens. Anyway, we're not here to talk about aliens. We're here to talk about Days of Future Past. Don't, Back to don't the... cause weird extra sounds on the audio by slapping your lap. Why? Everyone knows what I'm doing. <laughs> no, they hopefully. Don't. <laughs> What's he doing? Is he is he hitting himself? Yes. Noticing a newspaper headline saying that Professor Charles Xavier delivers a speech on mutant persecution, Bishop assumes he's here to find Xavier. So, time travel. Gives you memory loss, apparently. Here, is am I right? Am I right? It, it, apparently, yeah. the time it gives you memory loss. That's it. That's weird. It doesn't seem that out. It's a. It's a very. It doesn't seem that out of place to me. It's a. It must be a hugely traumatic thing. Like yeah, Terminator. All their clothes get zapped off. Like you know, there's just there's just yeah. I don't, I it's not a massive leap to go if you go if you travel through time. You you might you might be a bit confused. Yeah, okay, that, that, okay that's, that's fair <coughs> enough. So, this is how it happens in the comic book. Bishop goes back in time, or is it someone else that goes back in time? Yeah, it's not Bishop. Mm. Um, uh, Bishop is not in the Days of Future Past story mm. uh, in the comic. So, with, with, with Logan's help the, uh, of getting these little bits of tech from time to time, the imprisoned future X-Men have slowly been building a device that, uh, is invisible to the Sentinels. Good. And it emits a field that reverses their power-dampening collars. Mm. So they can't take the collars off because the Sentinels will know they've taken the collars off. Yeah. But they can create this field which will dampen the dampening, <laughs> cancel it out, negative and negative, right? Mm. Um, once it's activated, Rachel Summers uses her psychic powers to astral project the consciousness of Kitty Pride. Kate Pride Ooh. back into the body of her 15-year-old self in 1981. Right. The plan has to use Kitty because in 1981 she's the most inexperienced of the X-Men. She's only just turned up. Okay. She's like only been living with her for a, for a few weeks. She has yet to be trained on how to defend herself from a psychic projection or a psychic attack like this. Right, because if they tried it, if someone else ate, they're trained yeah. in psychic uh, t- protection. Yeah. yeah. So Kitty's mind is sent hurtling back in time and suddenly inhabits her younger body, displacing her 15-year-old, 14-year-old mind, whatever, she's 13 maybe, I can't remember. Mm. Um, and um, 
she uh, suddenly has to set about convincing the X-Men about who she really is, her story, and, and her mission as well. Wow. In prison, Gambit and Rogue visit Beast, who is cooperating with the authorities and serving his jail sentence after he was captured breaking into the Mutant Control Agency headquarters. While Rogue and Gambit are concerned with Beast's mental well-being, Beast assures them that he needs to do this for the reputation of mutant kind. I always, um, always loved Beast as a kid. Very gentle, confident person who's doing the right thing. Very confident in himself as well. Yeah. Loved him. Love him. So... It's a cool running story in the first season of the cartoon is that Beast gets arrested and chooses to stay in jail and go on trial. Does Beast ever go to prison in the comic books? No, not like not like this. Mm. Sort of, but not really, I guess. So hey. this story reminds me of an 80s X-Men story where a reformed Magneto, who is leading the X-Men, mm. um is confronted by federal agents and once he finds out they're federal agents he surrenders and he does go on trial for his crimes against humanity of which he has many um unlike the beast but so there is something with the beast though he does he does, he does get imprisoned i guess um during the 90s onslaught event Ooh, yeah. um which you'll remember from our bonus episode oh, I um, do. Hank starts acting very, very strange. Mm. And he ends up siding with Onslaught against the X-Men. Right. And it turned out that this wasn't the Beast. This wasn't Hank McCoy. It, it, it turned out that for about a year, the Beast was not the Beast that we all know and love. He'd been kidnapped and replaced by his twisted counterpart from the Age of Apocalypse universe. So when the Age of Apocalypse universe ended and reality went back to normal, Mm. through some shenanigans, the Dark Beast survived Mm. um, and was displaced to the 616 to to our universe, right? But in the past, the decades ago. So Mm. he spent several decades working in the shadows, learning about this world, setting up a base of power and experimenting with genetic manipulation and stuff and working with Mr. Sinister. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the time is right, he, you know, kibosh bonks Hank McCoy in the head. Um, And so, yeah, the Beast is a prisoner for about a year whilst the Dark Beast impersonates him with the X-Men. Amazing. I I really want to... I might revisit that episode myself, actually. I've got got them all on my computer because I edit them. Yeah. Yeah, but I want to read them, but I can't. I have to use DC Unlimited instead. Damn. Oh, well. Learning about the X-Men using his transceiver, Bishop still can't figure out why he's travelled back in time. As a nearby teenager mentions a video game called Assassin, Bishop hears that word and a memory is triggered. The reason for his time travel journey revolves around an assassin. Using the transceiver, he learns that the X-Men are the assassins and he needs to stop them. Commandeering a bus, Bishop heads straight for the X-Mansion. I like the uh, touch there. The Assassin video game cover has the Punisher on the front. Nice little Easter egg there. <coughs> and uh, why is that a deeper Easter egg? Oh, you've put me on the spot now, haven't you? We learned this in our Punisher episode from a few years ago. He, did he um, kill one of the X-Men? No. When uh, Jerry Con- when, when, the char- when the Punisher was first being created, Jerry Conway, the character's original name was the Assassin. 
Right, okay. okay. The Punisher's original name was The Assassin. And then Stan Lee comes in and goes, I think he should be called The Punisher. <laughs> also, I should be in the cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> As Bishop rams the X-Mansion front gates, Jubilee spots this on the X-Mansion security cameras and alerts everyone. The next second, the bus rams through the front door of the mansion, almost hitting Cyclops and Storm. Bishop emerges from the bus and opens fire at Cyclops and Storm. Jubilee and Wolverine enter and disarm Bishop. As Wolverine grabs Bishop and prepares to slash him, Bishop remembers Wolverine from the future and yells at him to stop as he knows him. The next second, Charles Xavier enters and orders Wolverine to stand down as killing Bishop won't answer any of the professor's questions. Amazing how often the X-Mansion gets attacked like this, isn't it? I mean, they, 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 there's someone always bursting in and setting... Even in the films, there's always some shenanigans. That's the word yeah. of the episode, shenanigans. What struck me about it, it when watching it this time is that the school is not used as a school. It doesn't do anything. It's just a huge house for them to live in. It's not a school. <laughs> there's no one going to school there. All the X-Men are adults. Yeah. Except for Jubilee. Yeah. It's There's just all these empty rooms with nothing happening in it. Maybe they couldn't afford to animate extra children and stuff. Well, they definitely couldn't. No, they no. definitely couldn't. They, they'd had a very ropey budget. How often does it get attacked in the comics out of interest? I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be able to say, tell you how many times it gets attacked. I can tell you how many times it's been completely destroyed. I want, I want data, Rob. So I want data. In 1982, mm. Corsair, the space pirate father of Cyclops... Oh, um, yes, him. Yeah. Returns to Earth by being chased by some uh, alien pirate hunters. Yeah. Um, and his ship crashes uh, into the mansion and explodes. And the bat and the ensuing battle, the whole, the whole school, the whole mansion is absolutely leveled. Um, and then it takes them about a, a full year in the comics to, to rebuild. They've shown quite a lot of restraint. Um, I was about to say, you would definitely rebuild that quicker with mutant powers. If you had Magneto, yeah. What else? Who, who, what else? I mean, Jean oh. Grey. But then Jean Grey's got to just do it constantly, isn't she? She's got to be a one-man builder. Anyway. Nah. Uh, 89, it's destroyed again when the Inferno event is... Uh, Mm. On its running its course, the um, this was a cool one. I remember this one distinctively. Did we cover um, Inferno? We have yet to cover Inferno, <laughs> but uh, this time it just blows up when mm. the X Men and the X Factor have both been gathered for the first time. The first mm. time the X Men and X Factor have ever met, um, they are gathered in the mansion. They're about to discuss what's been going on, and then the whole place just explodes. Um, <laughs> And that is uh, Mr. Sinister's doing. Um, and it really kind of went, as, as we're introducing Mr. Sinister as this new threat threat, the fact that he's just destroyed the mansion straight away mm. was uh, a big one. Um, and then, so that's 89. And then in 1991, X-Men number one, the best-selling comic book of all time as we have charted, mm. um, we have the, the mansion has been rebuilt. Yeah. And it's been rebuilt with um, advanced Shi'ar technology. Thanks Ooh, to Professor nice. X's uh, lover, Paramore, mm. uh, uh, Empress uh, Lilandra. So it's yeah, alien yeah. tech throughout the... Um, so the X-Jet has got alien tech in it, the Blackbird. The Danger Room is now features hard light holograms. And it's good to have benefits where, when, you're, when you're bumping when you with, got an, friends. Alien, with yeah. an alien woman. Um, 
And that's where Professor X's uh, golden floating hover chair comes from. Oh, so he, that that was that was never, or, or he was always in a wheelchair at the beginning, and then got the floating eight ninety one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just before this cartoon came out, then yeah, the, oh. this cartoon is based so heavily on nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two. Oh, um, brilliant! And then that ninety one mansion remains intact until. Grant Morrison takes over, <laughs> and in 2003, uh, it gets destroyed. But you don't see it get destroyed. There's a I, weird back-and-forth thing in terms of flashbacks and flash-forwards, but I you don't see to, it, but you see the wreckage. I need to. I, I think I need to read Grant Morrison's run on pretty much everything. I, I 100% agree. Batman and Superman, it's, it's glorious. Oh, I love it. Um, and so, and then 2005, Joss Whedon um, is doing Astonishing X-Men. Um, and that's when the danger the danger room comes to life ah, and okay. um, takes control of the blackbird and crashes the blackbird into the mansion. So that blows it up again. And then Mr. Messiah Complex. So at some point, um, the X Men are being guarded by uh, Rhodey, Jim James Rhodes. <laughs> wow. Piloting not the war machine, but a Sentinel. The Amazing. US government has commandeered Sentinels and turned them into <laughs> armor for military pilots. Incredible. So there are Sentinel squads uh, protecting slash guarding the mutants, and then they go mad and destroy the school. Um, and then the X-Men move and go... You know what? I'm rebuilding this mansion, and the X Men move to um, San Francisco, and they raise up Magneto's old asteroid base from the bay. Oh, maybe you tell. I, I thought you were going to say, and they become the West Coast X Men. <laughs> <laughs> they don't feel the need. Yeah, um, and they turn. Yeah. Um, they turn Magneto's old asteroid M into Utopia. Yes, uh, but then Wolverine goes. I've had it with you lot, and he moves back to Westchester. To New York, and he rebuilds the um, the school. This time, called the Jean Grey School oh. for Higher Learning. Um, it's been it's probably been destroyed once or twice since since then. Those are the major ones I I can put together because I've understood from uh, other people's conversations on the X Men that the people characters dying in the X Mansion blowing up is a running joke. Like the amount of times it's been it's yeah. Happened. When in the, just Whedon's run, when the Blackbird destroys the 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 mansion mm. um wolverine says next time we should just build this place out of lego um, <laughs> and x-men characters dying and coming back becomes such a thing that mm. it their in running joke is it's what we do um yeah. and they have um their they for a while when clem is writing it there's this thing of is i got better so it's like i thought they it's a running joke it's like i thought you died I got better. That's <laughs> it's, multi-Python, um, isn't it? I got better. Anyway, we'll continue with the story. Restraining Bishop in the war room, Jean Grey is amazed by how Bishop's equipment matches nothing that they know about. Looking for help, Bishop. Looking to help Bishop, Charles Xavier probes the mutant's mind and sees visions of the future, from political maneuvers against mutants to mutants being sent off to camps to sentinels turning on humans as well. Charles believes Bishop, this future is all their fault. Wolverine, however, is not convinced. Suddenly, Bishop's transceiver starts beeping with an alert. Someone else has come through the time portal. 
Again, they've managed to use genocide imagery in a cartoon. Bravo. Soldiers leading people off into internment. Yeah, into camps. Very, yeah. yeah, it's very... Ooh. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's, if we're watching that, it's a cartoon you think, oh, the baddies are taking people prisoner. But it's like, yeah, there's more to it than that. <laughs> it's it's, it's so horrible. Chris Clement was a um, political science major in, oh. at university. And nice. it's no... It's no coincidence that the x-men in his 16 years writing the x-men mm. uh, becomes the most political it's ever been and is littered yeah. with these um images from our shameful you know humanity's shameful history and mm. past and all these terrible examples of horrible persecution oppression and, and violence have been used over the years Mm. I, I, I'm not surprised that he, he, he did such a good job considering that because I always find with like films and TV shows and any kind of media when someone uh, comes into something that doesn't seem like it's obvious like bringing uh, uh, like political insight like this into something like a comic story you get such a rich uh, you get such such a richness to it you just think like it's almost like bringing so, way too many tools you need but then turns out it does improve the quality on a really subconscious level yeah, I, I find agree. that like I, I remember like listening about like David Chase creating the Sopranos, and it's like oh the, the inspirations he got are all over the place. Some like old Italian films, Twin mm. Peaks, things you wouldn't necessarily associate what the show is, but you cherry pick bits here and there, and it fits in so well that you, you don't even see where it joins up. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love that. I love it. Anyway, enough gushing. To continuing with the story. Escorting Bishop to the time portal, the team are attacked by Nimrod, an advanced sentinel robot. Just going to stop here. Stop here. When you were growing up, was yeah. Nimrod an, an insult? I no, it wasn't. It wasn't the first time I heard Nimrod was the Green Day album Nimrod. I never heard of the word before that. Uh, it was. It was a. It was a. It was an. Uh, I still can't hear. Mm. The name of that, and I've been reading about this character for a, for a while. I still can't hear that name without mm. going, um, yeah. But the Sentinel, not the your Nimrod, not not the not the Elgar piece of music. I don't know what that is. It's that famous piece of music he did. It's called Nimrod. Yeah. Oh, didn't know that. It's a well. You know how classical pieces have these long things, like something, something in B major from the first piece of whatever, and it's like, you know. Oh. But yeah, it's a uh, very, very good. Very, you, you'll recognize it. It was used in the film Dunkirk, like throughout. You know. Oh, okay. Fair, yeah, you'll recognize it when you hear it. I love it. The X-Men engage in a fierce battle against the robot, but they find that Nimrod is impervious to their powers. Storm decides to summon an extreme blizzard, which smashes the frozen robot apart. However, Bishop attacks the, the uh, Nimrod's tra tra uh, temporal transceiver, the device keeping Nimrod in their time, saying that they've only got a few seconds before the Sentinel reassembles itself. Bishop explains that if anything happens to his transceiver, he'll rip back through time. There's one bit in this bit that... That that made me laugh. Was <laughs> 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 it well? <laughs> I, I I questioned putting it in because you might go, no, no, this is actually serious. But like during the fight, Storm gets buried under rubble, and Cyclops' response, and I'm not, 
I'm not twisting things here. This is genuine responses. Oh no, Storm's claustrophobic. <laughs> no, yeah. It happens constantly in this cartoon series, and it's just poor Storm. It's it's just uh, and it's it's it, yeah, it's not, it's it's it was funny. Yeah. It's the thing is, you think, oh no, because it, it's like, you know, because Storm could get out of there, but she's claustrophobic, so it's kind of a weakness. But it's just like, no, oh no, she, she'll be crushed. It's like, oh no, she's claustrophobic. It's just like that's that it's felt used. Like, yeah. It's used like in the in the in the old in the, in the Silver Age when mm. every issue, super, some two-bit mugger and bank robber had kryptonite to use on Superman. Yeah. Every issue there was kryptonite. Every they used issue. they used claustrophobia on Storm like it's kryptonite and she's just constantly, oh no, something above my head! Oh, <laughs> having a meltdown! I hate claustrophobia! I hate it! <laughs> In, like Indiana Jones. I hate snakes, Jack! I hate them! Yeah. That didn't work! Anyway, Nimrod! Let's <laughs> talk about Nimrod! Who you find funny... Uh, he's not from the cartoons, is he? So he's not from the comics. He is from the he? cartoons. He's from the cartoon. We've just been watching the cartoon. Well, he's not from the comics, is he? Um, he's not from Days of Future Past, the, okay. the, the story. But when Chris Clement does further stories from that timeline in 1985, mm. that's when we meet uh, Nimrod. Okay. Um, these this it, the most advanced form of Sentinel, the Super Sentinel, dun, dun, the dun, dun, Sentinel dun. of the future. It for me, it this character turns up the year after Terminator is released, and right. he feels very Terminator esque to me. Okay. Um, in in some of the aspects of the character, um, the Nim- Nimrod and the name comes from um a biblical character, Nimrod the Hunter, which mm. I don't remember from ever reading the Bible, but there we go. Um, <laughs> Nimrod can convert his uh can basically can shape shift and look like an ordinary human. Um, mm. so he's a highly so that's where I get the Terminator vibe. Yeah. He's regular size and can look like a human to mm. infiltrate. That's Terminator to me. Um, uh, but he could also, he has also got some, it's not liquid metal, but he has that kind of ability before Regener- Terminator. Regenerative. Yeah. So before Terminator 2 came out, he had this ability to, like, from even the smallest part of him can regenerate and kind of a, reconnect with his other parts. And um, it's not entirely, it's not entirely clear where his consciousness exists because. Yeah. He can kind of pull this body together, this physical body together, but um, there are some elements of, of, of that. And he can, you know, he's got energy blasts and he can create force fields and teleport and stuff. He's, like, really, really, really difficult to fight and hurt and kill. Um, he, at one stage, took on all of the X-Men and all of the Hellfire Club at the same time um, and... Managed to trounce all of them. He killed several members of the Hellfire Club, and he severely injured Nightcrawler and and, and Rogue. He's top tier dangerous. Um, mm. He ends up traveling back in time, uh, or or does he? He ends up coming to the six one six eighties timeline, mm. and becomes a vigilante superhero. <laughs> uh, Clement does this really interesting thing with him, where. He comes back and it's like he has to learn about the world around him to acclimate himself to better hunt mutants. And as he acclimates himself, Mm. he takes on a human civilian identity. Mm. He becomes a construction worker called Nicholas Hunter. (laughs) And um, (laughs) after he gathers information, he's like, you know what? I'm going to change my prime directive because exterminating all mutants is not needed. 
Um, I just have to kill some of the really intense ones. So he only goes after the outlaws that, that are outlawed by the government, like the mm. X-Men. Um, and then the ones that are even worse than the X-Men. So be- he's not he's not robbing banks. He's not hurting civilians. He's a big ro- he's a robot dude that, that targets outlaws like the X-Men that the public hate. <laughs> so the public go, oh, he's one of them new vigilantes. Uh, and they don't know he's a robot. They go, oh, he must be must be an armored hero like Iron Man. Nimrod, go on, <laughs> Nimrod, get him. So uh, yeah, he's this, so he's got a secret identity yeah. in Nicholas Hunter, and he transforms into Nimrod. People think hey, he's just like War Machine or something. It's great. That's quite um, cool. That's quite cool. It was an interesting little thing. Yeah. It didn't last very long as a dynamic with the character. Different versions of Nimrod would appear over the years after he leaks his his AI onto uh, computer networks where it becomes a computer virus and mm. infects enough of the right computers to secretly rebuild his body. And, and then other Nimrods come back from the future and stuff like that. So, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Back at the X-Mansion, the X-Men question Bishop over who is the assassin. No one could figure out which one of them would go ahead with an assassination. The next moment, Rogue and Gambit enter the room, wondering what's going on with the new stranger. As soon as Bishop sees Gambit, he aims his gun at the Cajun and claims that Gambit is the traitor. He's travelled back in time to stop, and then Bishop pulls the trigger. So that ends the first episode, but before... We get before we take a break. Uh, this is the this is the first time we've met him in the show, and I think it's about time we spoke about him. Rob, tell us about Bishop. He's really he looks really cool. He's really cool in this in this yeah, I love uh, episode. Yeah. Um, he's got a great design. Bishop does not play a part in Days of Future Past. Okay, he's completely different. So he's first created in 1991. So like mm. two years before this comes out. Um. Or the year before the cartoon kind of started, really. So he's a brand new character when the um, the the X Men, you know, the animated X Men mm. team are using him and, and putting the show together. And in this role, in in his role in this cartoon, it doesn't make much sense. Like he's a bounty hunter who works for the Sentinels to hunt down mutants. So he's, but why is he dressed in the X Men's uniform? And why does he have <laughs> X Men logos all over his costume? Like, um. But they use the iconic look of him, so mm. yeah. So he is from. It's either a divergent, an offshoot reality that shoots off from the Days of Future Past timeline, mm. or it's from even further in the future than Days of Future Past. Ah, uh, so he's from a bad timeline, basically. It could be our timeline, mm. but he's from further in the future than we mm. see. Kitty, future Kitty Pride going to right. Mm. It's a world, yeah. So we we have rise of we have Sentinels in power, all of that sort of stuff. So Bishop's the son of an of an Aboriginal uh, mutant refugee that that flee from Australia to America the one day before Australia is essentially destroyed by a nuclear attack. Um, he's raised in a mutant concentration camp. Um, and he has the M ta- branded tattooed over his face. Ah, oh, that explains the M. Brand him as a mutant. Mm. Um, and uh, then there is the Summer's Rebellion, an uprising in which mutants and humans join together and, and destroy the Sentinels and kind of take free that oppression. Um, Bishop is raised on stories of the legendary X-Men and the heroic feats uh, and idealism, um, uh, but also... 
he's raised on the stories of the terrible traitor who betrayed the team Mm. and helped kill all the X-Men. In the ruins of the Xavier Institute, Bishop finds the uh, war room of the X-Men where he finds a damaged recording, video recording, of Jean Grey on the day the X-Men are killed, in which she garbled, doesn't hear everything, she speaks of a traitor, one of their own, one of the X-Men, destroying Mm. the X-Men from within. Um, So that is part of his background. Bishop is a member of the XSE, the Xavier Security Enforces. Um, a team of mutants dedicated to uh, in the future to bring in criminal mutants to justice um, and this team was founded by Forge, one of the few mutant associates to survive the X-Men's destruction um, one day a disgraced, murderous insane former XSE member called Trevor Fitzroy leads a big prison break and escapes with like a whole bunch of mutants through a time portal into the past Bishop follows to bring them all to justice and finds himself in the era of his greatest heroes the X-Men in the time just before they are betrayed and killed so he is on a tick that's why he doesn't go back Mm. he feels he's on a ticking clock can he help them and he i think maybe he gets stranded um so he 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 ends up joining the x-men appoints himself as xavier's bodyguard and personal security to make sure no one kills xavier and comes into immediate conflict with gambit (laughs) who bishop recognizes as the witness from his time period Mm. gambit the witness is the last man to have seen the X-Men alive. And now that Bishop is here in the past, he believes that Gambit is the traitor. He believes that Gambit is the one that betrays the X-Men, leads them to their death. Um, And so there's constant tension between those two. Bishop is such an awesome addition to the the X-Men stories in the 90s. He looks amazing, super cool, super badass. He's got this awesome designed by artist Wills Potassio who we talked about uh, he designs Bishop and then he leaves to forge Image Comics um, so Wills Potassio is one of those Image founders um, who uh, as we talked about led the, one of the, the big Marvel rebellion um, and he came with this cool X-Men lore behind him as well and added this tons of tension to the team as this big story hangs over their heads mm. and, and all of that for the resolution of who the traitor to the X-Men is, you'll have to check out our bonus episode on the Onslaught event. I think it's entirely appropriate, Will, when we're looking at days of future past, to talk about your dystopian future. All yes. of you out there. Yes. You can picture a diseased and decaying world where you find yourself with no Marvel versus Marvel to listen to. A terrifying, horrifying world where there's no new episodes arriving twice a month. And no new revisited, re-edited episodes arriving <laughs> on the other weeks. <laughs> Imagine a nightmarish life. No Marvel history, no Marvel trivia, no deep dives. That is the terrifying world that you are building for yourself unless you subscribe to us on patreon.com slash Marvel 
versus Marvel. Subscribe and keep the podcast going. The X-Men have to go back in time to stop an assassination. All you have to do, pledge £3 a month, the price of a cup of coffee, and you can avoid that hellish nightmare. It's all it takes. Save the podcast. Save the world. Now, once you're on there, you'll be rewarded with tons of very cool bonus content. Uh, There's uh, 67 bonus shows waiting for you at different tiers and different levels for you to explore right now. You'll also get early access to every episode. Um, Will, we just came out of the uh, anniversary month of Versiversary where our big bonus episode was Amalgam Comics. Mm. Um, Looking at a time in the 90s where Marvel and DC did the unthinkable and they merged their characters and their universes in what was a a very fun kind of experiment or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, You learned all about it for the first time. Yeah, Um, it's incredible. Incredible. And uh, what was your kind of your favourite, what are your favourite characters that we turned up in, in, in Amalgam? Well, obviously, I'm going to go with Dark Claw because it's Wolverine crossed with Who? Batman. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Iron Lantern was quite funny. I, I, I find them impressive because it feels like if these characters didn't exist, then you could believe them as legitimate comic book uh, characters. Yes, yeah, some of them, yeah. Because like, comic book characters tend to have quite convoluted backstories anyway. Yes, yeah, um, so this just, these are just like more hammering two things into one. Um, I, I liked uh, what they did with Lex Luthor. That was oh, uh, oh is it he Bruce? becomes he becomes Green Skull, the Green Skull, yeah. and then you have along alongside that you have Bruce Wayne, Agents of Shield. Yeah, that yeah. was so it, good. I, I I I did think it was odd as a child when I read yeah. them that there were multiple kind of versions of the same characters knocking around yeah. in this universe. Uh, there are two characters that are Hawkeye and Green Arrow merged together. Um, uh, <laughs> you can learn all about that in our Amalgam Comics special. Yeah. Um, next month, our big bonus episode, um, as Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 arrives in cinemas, our big bonus episode takes a deep dive into War of Kings, the most explosive Guardians of the Galaxy story of all time. A galactic war between the Shi'a Empire and the Kree Empire, as the Shi'a now have a terrifying, dangerous, powerful new leader who is hell-bent on conquering other galaxies. Um, And the war between these two empires could very well rip holes in the space-time continuum and end all things. We have the Guardians of the Galaxy, the X-Men, the Inhumans. Everyone gets involved and plays a part in this epic, epic battle that's only available patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. If you uh, sign up at the VIEP tier, you can get access to over 33 full-length bonus episodes. Um, you also get access, early access to every new episode of the main show. Um, lower tiers, you can get access to 30 mini-shows for just £3 a month, including Obscure Marvel, where me and Will each and every month uh, go diving into the trash cans of Marvel Universe to look at the most obscure and ridiculous moments from the history of Marvel comics that's patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel you can support the things you love and make sure they stay on the air don't wind up in a terrifying future where me and will have had to stop doing the podcast because you know it just doesn't work out anymore like you've got to 
You've got to subscribe. You've got to support. You've got to be involved in the community and keep the cool things you like going and prevent a terrifying future from occurring where there is no more Marvel versus Marvel. Head to patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Will, can you take us into part two of Days of Future Past? Of course. Here we go. Narrowly avoiding an oncoming lorry, Rogue drives Gambit along a scenic road in a shiny red convertible. Arriving back at the X-Mansion, Rogue and Gambit enter the war room to find the rest of the X-Men and Bishop aiming a gun at Gambit the moment the Cajun mutant enters the room. Bishop fires at Gambit and Rogue dives in the way of the shot, absorbing the blast. Gambit is hit by a second shot and the X-Men restrain Bishop, who screams that Gambit is the assassin and needs to be terminated. Bishop reveals that the dark future he is from is started with a single assassination by Gambit in Washington, D.C. After this, all mutants get blamed and humanity wants revenge. The Mutant Registration Act is passed and an army of sentinels are unleashed, killing most of the mutant population and imprisoning survivors into camps. But it doesn't stop there. The Sentinels are used against other humans to enforce a new world order, overthrowing governments of the world. So they got it spot on here with it not stopping at mutants, because as history has shown us, that's the thing about scapegoating groups of people. People's desire to scapegoat doesn't stop after one group of people have been dealt with. They just focus on another group and another group and another group. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Always happens, it, and it's happening right now, unfortunately. But anyway, let's uh, get back to the get back to the comic side. Is this how Sentinels rise to power in the original story? Um, it's similar. So Kitty, future Kitty, Kate Pride, recounts the events when she's trying to convince the the eighties X Men um, to help her. It's it is Senator Kelly being assassinated, mm. um, and it 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 leads to this wave of anti mutant sentiment mm-hmm. um and uh it says she says to the x men mutants became objects of fear and hatred we thought the mood of hysteria hysterical paranoia would pass but it didn't in 1984 a rabid anti mutant candidate was elected president Within a year, the first Mutant Control Act was passed. The Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. But the administration responded by activating the Sentinels. The robots were given an open-ended program with fatally broad parameters to eliminate the mutant menace once and for all. The Sentinels concluded the best way to do that is to take over the country. In the process, they destroyed not only mutants, but non-mutant superbeings, both hero and villain. By the turn of the century, the North American continent was under their complete control. We fought, we lost, we died. Oof. So it's um, yeah. it's we get to the uh, images of the um, Avengers, Spider-Man, mm. all those being wiped out and killed one by one Mad. as the uh, the Sentinels take over. Bloody hell. I kind, I, I don't know what it's going to be like with the MCU, but I really hope we get some really good X Men stuff coming. I'm really, really hoping we get. There's, there's so a huge much. amount of scope. 
There's a huge amount of scope to do really big sci-fi stories with the X-Men. I mean, with the X-Men, they're, they're their own universe in itself, almost. You could do yeah. so much arcs. Uh, oh, no, we won't get into it, but I'm, oh, what exciting times we if have. If it were me, if it were yeah. me, and if it was me, because this is where I think, who had X-Men? Fox, wasn't it? Fox, like, yeah. They weren't in the... They, they, when, they, when, when everyone saw what a uh, cinematic universe looked like with Marvel... Mm. You should have stopped and rebooted the X Men, because you could have then you could have had an X Men franchise, a um, a Wolverine franchise, an X Force franchise, an X Factor franchise. You could have had big mass events where they come together. You could have you could have had everything that Marvel has. Um, admittedly, they're not as well known, but mm. you can litter these other teams with popular characters, and you yeah. could have really done something. But instead, um, we got Dark Phoenix, where Magneto turns up to the final fight wearing jeans. And we got Apocalypse <laughs> as well, which was just rubbish. Ah, oh, God. I, well, we'll, ha- we'll get to Apocalypse one day, but I'm not really looking forward to that one, to be honest. Uh, I am looking forward to the, the film version of Days of Future Past, though. I do actually like that film. Even though it doesn't stand up against other Marvel films, it's uh, their MCU films at the time. I quite yeah, like it's, it. Yeah, um, it's a decent entry, yeah. Decent entry, yeah. Anyway, anyway. Back to the story. Quizzing Bishop about the assassination and trying to figure out who the target might be, the X-Men distrust of Gambit forces the Cajun to storm out of the war room. In the hangar, Gambit enters the Blackbird and is surprised by the X-Men. Asking where Gambit is going, the Cajun said he is heading to Washington to try and stop the assassination from happening. Cyclops and Charles Xavier order Gambit and Bishop to stay behind under supervision of Wolverine while the remaining X-Men fly to Washington. So this is another example of stuff you've mentioned before with Marvel hero teams, infighting and squabbling. Classic case here. I suppose so, yeah. Although this is... um... Because of a a, a, a a like a narrative mm. drive and a and a plot the plot point right yeah um what what we what we see what was revolutionary about like the X Men the Avengers and stuff in the uh, in the Fantastic Four in the in the sixties mm. is that their squabbling had like nothing to do with the plots it was just like <laughs> that all their funda- all their fundamentally flawed characteristics of kind of envy and jealousy and 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 um, bitterness and anger would just bubble up and they just fight all the time yeah. Um, yeah whereas it makes sense here they think this guy might be an assassin like yeah I'd, I know, I'd be but yeah him. it it does make remind me of what you said about that anyway back to the story. While Gambit, Wolverine and Bishop play cards and try to avoid fighting each other, the rest of the X-Men take position in Washington. However, unaware to them, in a nearby hotel, a group of mutants, Blob, Pyro and Avalanche, prepare for an assassination under the command of an unseen woman. Back at the X-Mansion, Gambit stops playing cards with Wolverine and Bishop to watch a news report on TV about the Senate Subcommittee on Mutant Affairs, with Senator Robert Kelly in attendance. Joining the game again, Gambit offers to cut the cards, but uses his powers to explode a card, filling a room with smoke, sorry, filling the room with smoke and allowing him to escape, escape using an X-Jet. So, you'd think Wolverine and Bishop would have made arrangements for this exact thing to happen. Okay, we're going to play cards at Gambit, but we've got to be careful though. The one thing he loves to use as a weapon to explode is <laughs> cards. <laughs> I would have been suspicious yeah, right away. But it, uh, yes, but it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't matter with Gambit. I mean, oh it, Gambit, like, guess while he wants. Uh, like 
you can't stop Gambit from if he wants to charge something and blow it up. Like yeah, true, true. You, you, what can you do? He'd do his jacket. He'd do the table. He'd do a sugar cube. He'd do uh, the wall. Sugar cube. He'd do so anything. His what are his powers again exactly? He, he, he charges things up, isn't it? So he can convert the potential energy stored in inanimate objects into uh, pure kinetic energy. So yeah. it charges the object and becomes highly explosive. The yeah. the power of the explosion mm. is dependent on the mass of the object. Right. So playing cards become essentially grenades with him. Oof, okay. But if he touches a wall Ooh. or something bigger, then the explosion is bigger. Mm. Um, but he prefers smaller objects because it takes... It, it's it's much quicker to charge them. Oh, because you, you need to hold on to something for ages, you need to right? Touch it and hold it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the but the only real limitation is that the, like how long it how long it would take him to charge something. Um, he has to be there for ages, like one of those radio contests where you have to touch a touch a car forever to win it. <laughs> oh, I remember um, that one. Oh, God, <laughs> he, that's that's a deep reference. Sorry. No, thank you. So he can also. Um, so what can he? It, it, he can accel- It's something he can do with his staff. It's accelerating the mm. kinetic energy. Yeah. Um, instead of converting it into an explosion, so he can do something else. So his bow staff, mm. he can basically make it go with more, make it move with more force. It's a it's a weird one. But then he's got this other thing. He can also like pour the kinetic energy into his own body. So that it makes him um, faster, stronger, more dexterous. He has mm. better balance. He has better uh, agility, endurance. Or in he can like charge his own biokinetic energy um, to make himself much, much better at every physical activity. Mm. Um, yeah, and and it it makes him. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes him. You can't read his mind. The, he's the the charge potential energy in his body, or whatever it is, means that you can you can't. It can shield his mind from even Professor X. You can't oh, wow. know what Gambit's thinking, which is why there's always this cloud over him, this question mark: Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? The psychics don't know because you've mentioned before he's a horrible person. He's done something horrible. Yeah, yeah, he has. Uh, yes. It's not for this episode. Not for this. Are we going to handle that soon, though? Don't know. Yeah, maybe. We've got a lot of really cool bonus episodes in the pipeline, and I don't want to. I don't want to do everything out of sequence when there's so many more cool Marvel things to come. Absolutely, understand. Like when we get a cool Gambit in a movie, it'd be good to do a lot of Gambit stuff. But I don't know. Yeah, we we might be able to do it. Okay. Cool. At the Senate hearing, Charles Xavier is questioned by Senator Kelly as to the purpose of his school, accusing the school of being a front for pro-mutant propaganda. Look, they're not yes. completely wrong. I, I, knew, I knew you were going to say this, because I was thinking about this later on. They're saying it's a front. It's like, well, there's it no kid. 
it is not a... government it... officials. That's that's a, some sort of terrorist group. But they're a well, military it, operation. He does he does teach well not in the, the apparently not in the cartoon, but in the films he definitely teaches kids. They have kids there, you know, being taught yeah. lessons. But it isn't exactly a yeah yeah. It is, Look, it is if a... you're in favor of gun control, you should be in favor of mutant registration. Because you can't have dudes walking around <laughs> with the ability to blow up buildings with their eyes. Like we need to keep tabs on these people. Are you are you are you arguing in favour of pro mutant control? Seeing what happens next. It's a tightrope. You've got a oh. you got a balance. Oh. Baby. Oh, it's nice when you're the one that's to going down the slippery slope for once in these ethical Look, Marvel it only discussions. Takes one like angry yeah. mutant to blow up their school before you'll all be on my side going all, all yeah, that, we need we need mutant control. All that it takes to stop an evil mutant with metal powers is a good <laughs> mutant with anti metal yeah. powers. <laughs> we need a government oversight. We need a wall. We're going to build a wall. <laughs> Sorry, that was... Put them all in camps. That's how you solve the mutant problem. <laughs> anyway, the next second, the room starts shaking while a woman sitting at the back glances at her watch and remarks, right on time. The doors to the room burst open as Avalanche and Pyro storm in, smashing up the room. Jean Grey and Cyclops fight with Avalanche and Pyro as Charles Xavier sends out a psychic message to the rest of the X-Men to head to the capital at once. I have to admit, this is a fairly clumsy assassination attempt. In fact, you could call it a half-ass assassination attempt. Boo! You should Boo. be ashamed of who you are. Boo. I, I, I am. That's why I started doing comedy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's like when I think assassination tell, I think of all the, the Hitman games, all the video games I've played. And it's like, yeah, you never just storm into a room. You got to do something really swift. But anyway, so from what uh, I take it, they're doing a fairly decent adaptation of the story uh, in this cartoon. But you've mentioned it being dark, and it doesn't seem to be as dark as it could be with a Saturday morning cartoon. What are they missing? Oh, they, there's a whole half of the story they don't do in this oh, cartoon. Oh, okay. All so, right. Days of Future Past is, is a split story. Half of mm. it happens in the modern day of the 80s, right. as the X-Men try to prevent this assassination. Mm. But the whole other story happening in the future at the same time. Oh, very good. The Sentinels are about to launch their attack on Europe and the rest of the world, hmm. which means the governments of the rest of the world have aimed all their nuclear weapons on North America and are about <laughs> to launch. God. So the X-Men, the X-Men's real mission is not this thing in the past. Hmm. Like it, That's like a Hail Mary, last-ditch, final hope thing. Hmm. They have no idea how that's going to pan out. It's like the a they've shot in the dark, basically. Yeah, yeah the, the future X-Men have got to stop the Sentinels from launching. That's their kind of real mission. Hmm. The X-Men don't have a time machine, and they don't really know about... Their resources are really, really low. They hmm. don't have any... Hank's not there. Xavier's not there. They don't have any idea of what would happen by Kitty changing the past. Mm. So there's this added tension that they don't know how it will work if it works. They actively talk about whether it will just create a divergent timeline they know nothing about and they'll all still be trapped in hell mm. or whether it will wipe them out of existence and and 
replace them with a brand new timeline that would essentially get rid of them. Yeah. And Kitty and Colossus are torn because succeeding in this time travel mission, they say, might like wipe out us, our marriage, our yeah. love. We might, we might never have had children together. Um, so there's a, a lots of existential questions in this. Very good, very By good. By changing the past, do you like what do you actually change, and can you change? Right. Mm. Um, so as soon as Kitty's mind is projected back in time, her body goes catatonic, and they have to scoop her up, protect her, and um, sorry, uh, they have to um, protect her because she's gone catatonic. Mm. Um, and then they have to get out of the concentration camp with Logan's help. Mm. Um, they have to uh, escape and go to stop the Sentinels. So part of that is they just have to leave Magneto behind because he can't he can't walk, he can't run. Jeez. He's trapped in a wheelchair, and oh, he's no. like he, they just leave him to face the wrath of the Sentinels once their escape has been spotted. Um, a Sentinel patrol unit... They, they escape through these underground tunnels, the subway tunnels. A Sentinel patrol unit um, finds them, rips the roof off, immediately um, obliterates Franklin Richards with a... with a, They turn him to ash as he Oof. screams. Ooh, no. And he has a psychic rapport with his lover, Rachel Summers. No. So she... She feels his death when he dies. Oh, no. She is flooded with his uh, fear and pain and what it feels like when a life is snuffed out. Um, the X-Men, the older X-Men fight back against these Sentinels. Colossus picks Wolverine up and says, it has been long time since we did Fastball Special, da? And like hurls Wolverine at the Sentinels, the classic mm. Fastball Special yeah. where... Colossus throws Wolverine and Wolverine's claws are out. And we get a description which, from my youth, I've never forgotten. Here we go. It is, it's just a very, it's just cool Wolverine. It's part of why Clement made Wolverine cool. Um, as Wolverine is flying at this sentinel to tear its head off. Muscles clench, synapses close, and gleaming adamantium claws pop out of the back of Wolverine's hands. These retractable claws are forged of the strongest metal known. Likewise, his entire skeleton is laced with that same miracle metal, making his bones virtually unbreakable. Add to that a berserker fury that gives him the fighting prowess of a score of heroes." It's no wonder that even these emotionless robots respect and almost fear the Wolverine. <laughs> um, and it just, you know, smash all trees off. Colossus collapses a building onto the Sentinels and the, the, the X-Men manage to escape. Mm. And they make their way to the home of the Fantastic Four, the Baxter building, where they found out through their intelligence that there's a data bank that, that the Sentinels need. And so they've got to destroy that to stop their their expansion, their their, their invasion of the rest of the world. Mm. Um, they come up to the top level. They they see a sentinel on guard. His back turned to the um, to the to the elevator where they're sneaking in. Colossus hurls Wolverine again. Another fastball special, but this time the sentinel is faster. Mm. You check out the final image I've sent you. The okay. sentinel spins around. And Ooh. kills Wolverine in midair, burning him to to ash. 
Um, and the Sentinel reveal, like Wolverine's adamantium lace skeleton hits the floor. Every scrap Ooh. of flesh and, and who he is burned away. Wolverine is dead. The, the Sentinel reveals that the X-Men mission has been in vain. There is nothing important in the Baxter building. Um, they just wanted to lure the Resistance into a trap. Storm attacks, incredibly angry, lightning and all of that. But one of the Sentinels releases a metal spike that just runs her through, impales her from behind, cutting right through her and killing her. Um, and then Colossus snaps and goes on a rampage. And that is incredibly sad because colossus is a gentle so it says peter rasputin was ever a gentle man a man of peace a man who like the woman he holds dying in his arms thought life was the most precious of gifts and love the most precious celebration of that gift aurora was a sister to him the best friend he ever had and he finds that her death is unendurable his hands red with her blood, he screams. And moments later, when he feels himself gripped by a murderous berserker fury to rival Wolverines, he welcomes it. Ooh, hello. And we have Rachel Summers cradling Kitty Pride's, Kitty Pride's comatose body hidden in an alley beneath the Baxter building. And she's just weeping as one by one in her head... She is telepathically feeling her friends die yeah. until she is all alone with a comatose Kitty Pride. Oh, that's dark. That's like not in. They could not put this on Saturday morning cartoon show. They didn't even put that in the film, but that's a different reason. But yeah, Oof. oh dear, that's 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 depressing. Anyway, back to the cartoon. As Cyclops Rogue and Jean Grey chase after Avalanche and Pyro, they are blocked by Blob. Trying to punch Blob, Rogue's punches absorb and then she is thrown across the city before being caught by Storm. Pyro launches a flaming bird that chases after Rogue while Blob advances on the rest of the X-Men. Jubilee and Cyclops' powers do nothing, but Wolverine suddenly appears and climbs on the large mutant, blinding him, forcing Blob into a pool of water before Storm uses an arctic wind to freeze Blob in place. Cyclops asks Wolverine why he's here and not back at the X-Mansion guarding Gambit, while Pyro is thrown against the frozen pool. Bishop appears and fights Avalanche, but one of their blasts knocks apart a building and almost crushes some innocent bystanders. But Jean Grey, with the help of Rogue, is able to save a little girl from being killed by the falling building. While they're distracted, Bishop runs off into the Capitol building. Uh, yeah, making Blob just burp all the time. That felt like a very <laughs> 90s, naughty thing. Like, oh, it's the fat guy. He burps because he eats all the time. Get it? He's, he's, he's unhealthy. Like, okay. Yeah, but that would happen if you ate all the time like like the Blob does. He does, yeah. To be fair, he does eat a lot. Blob, he, he loves a good feed, he does. Look he does. He, oh God, he, he, he does look like you could just run up, run against him and just bounce back. Like, when he loses his powers, he just dies. Like in he can't contain day, it. Because just, his heart stops. He just has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> Sorry, that's just like... When the Scarlet Witch removes all mutant powers from the world, he's one of the mutants, and he just goes, "Oh no, I'm too fat!" and dies. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my calories are gaining on me. 
Oh, that's 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 quite horrible. Anyway, uh, we got Blob, we got Pyro, and Avalanche. Uh, we've seen two of these characters in the films. Don't know about Avalanche. Like, uh, do they? But do they play a role in the uh, original Days of Future Past? Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. So we have Mystique, um, hmm. who is originally a Ms. Marvel character. She, Ooh, um, she when when Chris Clement was writing Ms. Marvel, mm. that's uh, Carol Danvers to um, to 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 the rest of you. Um, before she was Captain Marvel, she was called Ms. Marvel. Uh, back in the seventies, there was this whole: what if we took all these uh, male characters and did female versions of them? So we get yeah. She Hulk, Spider Woman, Ms. Marvel. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. So in this story, in this cartoon. Mystique is impersonating someone that works for the government. In the comic books, she's not impersonating someone. She's like, she's either killed this woman and replaced her a long time ago, or she <laughs> spent years becoming this person. Okay. And she, and she works for uh, DARPA, the Defense yeah. Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, and uh, yeah, but she's stealing uh, alien weaponry, and it brings her into contact with Ms. Marvel. Anyway, Clement then starts doing X Men, and he's like, "Oh, she'd be a good villain." And so she creates the the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Mm. Magneto is uh, out of the picture. He's a good guy now. He's starting to be reformed. He's reformed, Magneto. He is. I can't think of an opposite of magnets. Then uh, why start? Don't start a joke if you don't have a punchline, Will. I have ADHD. <laughs> I, I, I do this stuff. I'm impulsive. Okay. So, yeah, she starts the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is Avalanche, Blob, Pyro, and um, Mystique's very close, as close as a friend, as female friend, same-sex friend, as she could possibly have in the 80s. Oh. Uh, because they couldn't have girlfriends back they, then. They, 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 they were just roommates, were they? they were just yeah, roommate. Uh, Mystique's roommate, Destiny, um, who is a, a, a precog. Um, and so... Uh, What's a precog again? Precognition powers. Oh, does that mean they can see the future or something? Yeah. That's the one. So Days of Future Past is is actually their first appearance as a team, these these people. Mm. And they are the ones trying to assassinate Senator Robert Kelly. Um, killing oh. him is meant to serve as a, um, a, a severe warning, a violent warning to any humans speaking out in opposing the mutants. Um, Mystique does something very, very cool with uh, the, this brotherhood, these characters, which I've always loved. So... Eventually, tensions between the government and mutants become really dangerous, and Mystique is like, uh-oh, I've played a wrong one here. I think trying to kill that senator might have been a mistake. Mm. So she goes to the government, to the National Security Council, the head of the National Security Council, in a car park or whatever, uh, and she's like, how about the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants comes to work for the government? <laughs> And like what? Because no, no, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Full pardons for me and all my friends, and we now work for you as mutant <laughs> hunters. And the NSA go, the NSA goes. That's actually a great idea. So the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants become federal agents. They get rebranded as Freedom Force because it's patriotic and military. Yep. And off they go. Their first job, they arrest Magneto, uh, lock him up. They gain Spider-Woman as a new member of the team. They team up with the Avengers and stuff. And it's a huge irritation to the X-Men 
because they're like, we know you are evil. And they're like, oh, and you're manipulating the system. Can't touch us. We're government. <laughs> We've got pensions with the government now. It's very, very smart, very cool little, little move that Mystique does with the... Uh, with the team, because every time the X Men fight Freedom Force mm. and they're yelling, "You're the bad guys!" It's just painted as, "No, no, no! You're the bad guys! You're fighting against the government." <laughs> I love it. That's really good. Elsewhere in the Capitol building, Robert Kelly is led by his aide into a room, but Kelly is shocked to see the same aide tied to the floor. Changing their appearance, Robert Kelly's aide changes into Gambit and tells Kelly of their plans to kill Kelly for the good of mutants. However, the next moment, the real Gambit enters and the two fight while Robert Kelly frees the real aide. Bishop suddenly enters the room and shoots one of the Gambits. While one of the Gambits tells Bishop that the other Gambit is the fake one, Bishop decides to shoot them both to be sure. But Rogue flies in and decides... Shoot us both, Spark! <laughs> One of the gambits has a goatee beard. No. <laughs> but the rogue flies in and disarms bishops before crushing the transceiver, sending Bishop back to the future. <laughs> Sorry, that I, 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 I <laughs> We're gonna send you back, Bishop! <laughs> anyway, how do the X-Men save a day in the comic books? Anything like this? No. Um it all like like destiny's a bigger part of the story in the uh, in the in the comic books. The character Destiny, who as mm. we said, um has precognitive abilities. She has dreams and visions of things to come, but she also knows what is about to happen to her physically. So she's she's quite difficult to like capture or or beat mm. because she knows whatever you're about to do. Yeah. She's not a good fighter. So like you know what I mean? Like, knowing that Wolverine's about to stab you and slash you, it doesn't really help because he's <laughs> oh. faster and stronger and better than you. Yeah, yeah. He, he just, just don't get into that situation is part mm. of her power. Um, so it's almost like, well, no one can sneak up on her and no one... She's she's taken Senator Kelly away mm. from the fights between the X-Men and the Brotherhood and she's about to um, kill Senator Kelly with a crossbow for some reason. Don't know why. <laughs> Well, she doesn't have any deadly powers, does she? No, but why a crossbow? Why not a gun? Who knows? Um, Mm. So, but it all hinges on Kitty Pride. Mm. Because Kitty has travelled through time and changed the past, she's made herself an anomaly in time. Something that Destiny cannot predict and cannot see. Destiny uh, is blind, so her Mm. only... She knows what is about to happen. She can't, like, see-see. She can only see the future. So, Destiny is... in. Kitty is invisible to Destiny. So, she phases through her and disrupts her just as um, just as Destiny is about to fire the lethal shot and, and Senator, Kenny's, uh, Senator Kelly's life is saved. And as soon as she does that, as soon as Kitty saves the day, her... Um, her older consciousness slips back into the time stream and the 1981 mind of kitty pride wakes up in her body with no memory of what's just happened so wow yeah wow with senator kelly safe he and his aide exit the room as rogue approaches gambit the cajun mutant's form changes to that of mystique it was her all along mystique confidently states that rogue will let her escape when asking why she would let why she would do something like that, Mystique says, Because once I looked like this, 
and changes her form to one that Rogue recognises, her own mother. So, in so Mystique is Rogue's mother, essentially, in the comics, or just a cartoon? Sort of, uh, sort of but not really. There we go. So, uh, Rogue never knew her mother. Um, her mother ran away when she was young. Mm. She's a very troubled um, upbringing. Accidentally puts a boy into a coma. Uh, because of her, her burgeoning powers, hmm. that eventually she is found by uh, Mystique and Destiny. So Destiny had a vision of Rogue becoming a very powerful mutant. Hmm. So Mystique and Destiny seek Rogue out, take her under their wing, and they both become like maternal figures to her. Hmm. Um, so Rogue would call Mystique Mama. Um, Mystique is able to turn Rogue's loneliness and her her envy and her bitterness and her despair and turning all into anger and basically recruits her into the brotherhood of evil mutants and that's how rogue gets her start fighting the avengers um and stuff like that uh so yeah there is a part of there's there's a large chunk of her life where destiny and and mystique were like mother figures to 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 rogue um clement stated that if he had not left Marvel in 1991, Mystique would have been revealed as Rogue's real, real biological mother. Oh, interesting. So, yes, Rogue never knew her mother because she went on the run and she ran away. But that was going to be that was going to be Mystique. Um, Clement's original idea for Mystique, or maybe this was John Byrne. I think it was Clement. Was for Rogue for Mystique to actually be Rogue's father. Okay, um, because although it was never explicitly said on the page. Mystique and Destiny were in a relationship, were, were lovers, were committed couples, sorry, for many, many, many years. Very um, good roommates, very good roommates. Mystique was going to shapeshift into a, make herself a biological male, hmm. and then impregnate Destiny. And so then they would have a child together. But Marvel was not ready for that kind of story uh, <laughs> in the 80s and 90s. Um, so we don't have this moment in the comic book story because Rogue doesn't meet the X-Men until the next year, 82. Mm. Um, but during the fight, Mystique reveals to Nightcrawler that she not only knows his real name, but makes cryptic references to Nightcrawler's mother. Mm. And there's a there's a parallel here between this and the cartoon mm. because um, Mystique is later revealed to be Nightcrawler's mother as well. That would make more sense. Same skin colour. That came out racist. Uh, <laughs> Same kind of, yeah, bluey, bluey. appearance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Outside the room, Cyclops and Wolverine bump into the senator and his aide, who tell the mutants about the shapeshifter in the next room. Entering the room, they find Gambit out cold. Outside, Rogue carries Mystique to safety, while the shapeshifter says how she has failed Apocalypse, who gave her purpose. Rogue points out that Apocalypse wants slaves, pointing out the experiments Mystique almost performed on her at Muir Island. She then asks why her mama would do would uh, why she did that. Mystique says that it seemed like the only way she could get Rogue back, as Rogue stands there stunned as Mystique walks away. Back in 2055, Bishop is disappointed to see that nothing has changed. Forge has Forge enters the room and says he can try again if he if he has to, once the machine has been rebuilt, because one thing they have plenty of is time. 
Walking into the next room with Wolverine's adamantium skeleton in a container, Bishop tells Forge that he must complete his missions and the dark future... Sorry, Bishop tells Forge that he completed his mission and the dark future still occurs. Forge says that something else must have happened after the assassination attempt that caused the world to go this way. So we mentioned about the ending being a lot different than in the comics. How is the future affected in Days of Future Past in the comics? It's complicated. Hooray! (laughs) At the the end of the Days of Future Past story, the two-parter, we have no idea. We never Mm. see what happens. Um, Kitty Pride leaves... Older Kitty Pride leaves her younger body as Mm. soon as she saves Senator Kelly. You assume that means a success, but it might just be because that's what she thought she had to do. Mm. Um, So we get no answers. and The audience is left with, with no answers. Um... Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. Did did that uni- did that world did that future get like did America get destroyed by nuclear warheads? Did the Sentinels invade the rest of the world? What happened? Mm. Um, we eventually find out. We find out when Rachel Summers appears in our time um, from the future. The redhead. Mm. Um, the redhead Rachel Summers from um, who was looking after Kitty at the last moment. We find out that Kitty woke up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kitty and Rachel Summers were angry. The mission was success, but nothing changed in their future. Um, so they go on a suicide mission to destroy a Sentinel factory. Ah, oh, before that though, before that. Rachel Summers sends her astral presence into the past to see what went wrong Mm. and learns that she did not send Kitty Pride into their past. She sent Kitty's spirit into a parallel timeline's past, Earth 616. So they were not able to alter their own future. Mm. And she sees glimpses of the 616 world, including Mm. her father Cyclops Mm. and... Her mother becoming the Dark Phoenix. And she encounters a voice that is from the Phoenix Force. Mm. And it speaks to her a little bit. Anyway, they go on this suicide mission and they're like, we can't change anything. We might as well die and blow up some Sentinels. And the moment before Rachel Summer's death, the Phoenix Force from our world goes, oh, I like her. I'm having her. Wrenches (laughs) Rachel Summer's from the Days of Future Past timeline into the 616 world and bonds with her. Oh, God. And so Rachel Summers arrives with some Phoenix powers uh, in our world. Um, <laughs> oh, boy, she, that's she, spicy. Yeah. Uh, and she's also, she faces huge existential problems because mm. uh, when she gets here, like her mom is dead and her mom never had her. Yeah. So she's like, where yeah. am I? What is this? She joins up with Kitty Pride, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Captain Britain as part of a team called Excalibur. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a great story by Alan Davis called Days of Future Yet to Come, the <laughs> Excalibur go back to the Days of Future Past timeline and lead a lot of um, Marvel UK superheroes who go there to overthrow the Sentinels and kind of free everyone. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's a fun sequel. Back in the 90s, Charles Xavier, Jean Grey, and Cyclops approach Robert Kelly's office, but are shocked to find the room in ruins with the Senator nowhere to be seen. 
Jean Grey assumes it's the work of the same gang of mutants they face, but Charles knows who really took him. This was no- so cool. Noticing that his watch has been magnetised. So, we've got a sinister ending here, obviously, because... As we all know, the X-Men cartoon goes from one thing to another to another to another. Yeah. Do we do we get a sinister ending like this in the original comics, or is it, ah, that's nice. We've no, saved. It's, yeah, sinister ending, it's not to do with Magneto. Um, mm. One of the problems with this animated adaptation mm. is that this cartoon series, the X-Men animated series, mm. in its first episode, starts with Sentinels working for the government, Yep. kidnapping children and yep. ripping people out of their homes. Yeah. And then it does this story where the terrifying future is Sentinel the working tools. for the government and kidnapping mm-hmm. children. So some of the impact is kind of lost. Like, yeah. that's where we began. Days of Future Past ends with a massive uncertainty about has this thing been averted or not? Mm. Like, Senator Kelly survived, but have we avoided Sentinels being the end apocalyptic results right um the very public attack on senator kelly by a group Mm. of powerful mutants um has terrified the u.s government so days of future past ends with a clandestine shadowy meeting in white house between the president senator kelly henry guyrich who has been on this crusade against mutants and superheroes the nsa and a billionaire industrialist called Sebastian Shaw, who Ooh. we last saw running the Hellfire Club uh, and the, as the man who corrupted Jean Grey and unleashed the Dark Phoenix. Ooh. Sebastian Shaw is like, you guys need Sentinels? I'm the guy that can build them. So the president gives the go-ahead for a secret operation codenamed Project Wide Awake giving the green light to Shore Industries and the contract to build a new platoon, a new army of new and vastly improved Sentinels and giving Guy Rich the green light to um, use them to control the mutant problem permanently. So the comic book story leaves us with the idea that time is a flat circle. You cannot (laughs) escape your future. There we have it, folks. The deep dive into uh, Days of Future Past, the animated series, 90s adaptation, and a deep dive into the story itself, one of the most influential, bleak (laughs) stories in the history of Marvel Comics and Marvel. Um, Will, I'd love to get your, um, your final thoughts on the movie. Oh, what, oh, oh, on the on the cartoon, the cartoon, yeah, not movies. Yeah, sorry. But as I said, as I said several times throughout, oh, I'm a sucker for time travel and, and history altering sci-fi. So this was right up my my street. I love the way a Saturday morning cartoon is dealing with dark subjects like genocide and politics without feeling a bit much or leaving a bad taste in the mouth. And uh, once again, love love some of the characters in this cartoon. Gambit and Rogue, I I adore. They just have so much personality. And uh, also, I love the way it feels like we're in the middle of a long-running story, and you just know you'll just see Bishop again. And your favourite piece of trivia from what uh, we've uh, gone over in this episode? I think it might be uh, the Chris Claremont going, oh, I'm going to use Mystique again, uh, and this time she's a mutant. <laughs> she, she was always a mutant, yeah. But like, easier um, for the X-Men. But also, just like, yeah. carrying your favourite characters with him, yeah, and doing I Freedom loved, Force. 
I love the darker side of the original comic as well. That was just incredible. Harrowing. Harrowing. Um, uh, reading list, um, Days of Future Past. I mean, I think there's some short collections out there, but mm. there's a really good one. It was Marvel Epics Collection, Fate of the Phoenix. It's got the whole Dark Phoenix saga, mm. and then Days of Future Past as well, because they happen right after each other, plus the introduction of Kitty Pride for the first time. Um, if you can find any Excalibur collections out there, um, I, I reckon Alan, Alan Davis Excalibur, mm. um, Days of Future Yet to Come is a fun kind of sequel and wrap-up of the thing, although it may feature a bunch of characters you don't know from Marvel UK, uh, which but it is still a lot of fun. In our next episode... Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is about to hit cinemas. Me and Will are going to explore Guardians of the Galaxy, the animated series from 2015, and dive into some splendiferous Guardians history and trivia. Um, Don't miss that one. And for all your bonus awesome content, head to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. Marvel vs. Marvel was researched, written, and performed by Rob Holden and Will Preston. The show is produced by Will Preston, and our theme song was composed and performed by Dan Walsh. Head to patreon.com slash marvel vs. marvel for awesome bonus content. Marvel vs. Marvel